0: Let, let's go to a passage of Scripture in Judges chapter 3. I believe this is gonna kind of really help us deepen our resolve as the saints with regards to our purpose as believers. And, and in Judges chapter 3, we have what could probably seem like a bizarre or random passage of Scripture, but I do know that it will lock in like a puzzle piece by the end of the sermon. In Judges chapter 3 Verse 1 It says, These are the nations that the Lord left in the land to test the Israelites who had, had not experienced the wars of Canaan. He did this to teach warfare to generations of Israelites who had no experience in battle. And these are the nations, the Philistines, those living under the five Philistine rulers, all the Canaanites, the Sidonians and the Hivites living in the mountains of Lebanon from Mount Baal-Herman to Lebanon, Hamath. These people were left to test the Israelites to see whether they would obey the commandments the Lord had given to their ancestors through Moses. For our first instalment in this series, we're gonna look at a number of things. But today, I thought we could open up by exploring the unseen realm, the unseen realm, to kind of get an overview, to whet our appetite, so to speak, and then over this series, begin to dig in and unpack all the elements that accompany an understanding of the unseen realm. I hope you're ready. I hope you're ready. I hope you haven't filled up on Stranger Things. I hope that you've still got some appetite some unseen things. Well, to prepare your heart for the Word of God today in our teaching series, I want you to find five people around you, look them in the eyes and ask them, have you registered for Amen Conference? Go for it. Go for it. Go for it. Ask them with conviction. (laughs) Go for it. So I killed a serpent yesterday. Snake out in the property. I didn't really do it. Uh, Francesca, our, our dog, did. Not not really my dog. Let me let me tell the truth. Kira's dog, Francesca, the obedient one is mine. The disobedient one is hers. And and Francesca uh, is crazy. Francesca is wild, fearless, and uh, on my prayer walk we we go on this prayer walk. I like to take the dogs with us. My dog well behaved and stays with me and obeys me. Uh, Francesca decides that she is gonna live her own life, her own way, okay? And girls just wanna have fun. Francesca does not want to be obedient. And, and I saw Francesca off down, down the hill and she was pulling this stick out the ground. And I'm like, Francesca, what are you, what are you doing? Realizing that the stick was moving. One of the stick was a snake. And, and, and the snake was trying to get in the hole and she was trying to pull the snake out the hole. And so I'm trying to throw rocks at Francesca to stop her pulling a snake because I knew when the bitey end comes out, she's in trouble, okay, she's not very smart. Uh, and so I'm trying to get her away from the snake and all of a sudden she pulls the snake and the snake flings out of the hole and, 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 and then I'm like freaking out, so I run. Okay, all dogs for themselves, you know? Uh, So I'm like, you know, because I know how these things work. You're just stupid. You just think it's going to play with you. Okay, so I I leave only to turn around to see that she has now the snake by the head. Her tooth is through the snake's skull and just laying limp. Now, I've killed a couple snakes out in the property. They usually take about 20 hits with the shovel to kill it. One bite. And she killed the serpent. And I put it on uh, social media. You were really proud of her, weren't you? You were like, "Yeah, that's that's my disobedient dog right there." But but it's funny because I put it on social media, and it's amazing how many of you were like, "Nope, nope, not coming to your place." <laughs> like like afraid. Not even just you. Like my girls, they they're very hesitant to go down the back paddock because they don't know what's down there. I know what's down there. There's snakes. It's interesting that me and Francesca know what's down there, and we ain't afraid to go. But those who don't know what's down there are afraid to go. It's funny that what is often unknown, you're most afraid of. i got some good news for you in this series, specifically for today, that the unseen realm does not have to be the unknown realm that we can know some things about the unseen realm that will help us maybe be less hesitant in the way we approach the unseen realm and the things that are spiritual that we don't know a lot about now that maybe hold us a a little bit away from approaching the unseen realm. And so maybe by knowing it, we won't be so afraid of it. And maybe we will embrace it, understanding that God has a plan for it. In fact, I want to do something from the start of this series, something unconventional. I want to kind of give you the revelation or the conclusion right at the beginning and then spend the rest of this series filling in the gaps. Because when it comes to understanding the unseen realm, it can actually almost be better to focus more on the seen realm, understanding that which will illuminate the purpose of the unseen realm. Yeah. So so, so, I want to make sure that we approach it correctly. I want to make sure that what we understand and what you'll find throughout the Bible, in fact, is that the Bible is very clear that there are two distinct realms, the seen and the unseen. These two realms are not mutually exclusive or peripheral to each other. They are intricately connected by design, existing in parallel all the way throughout time. And what we'll find is, is we are most obviously familiar with the seen realm, a realm that We also know as the terrestrial realm or the the visible realm or the physical realm and one that is framed with intangible realities. That's the realm that you are in right now. It's the realm that you are most familiar with. It's using all of your senses. It's the realm that you see, that you feel, that you touch and sitting next to your neighbour that you can even smell. This is the realm that you are within. Why do Gen start sniffing each other? That's weird. (laughs) Weird. (laughs) At the same time as there is the seen realm, there is the unseen realm, which exists in a spiritual reality that, while invisible, let me assure you, is no less real than the seen realm. In fact, in Matthew chapter 6, where Jesus, while preaching his famous Sermon on the Mount, we we get him articulating not only the two realms, but how they engage with each other. Matthew chapter 6. Verse nine, it says this, This then is how you should pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Check this out in verse nine. We see Jesus reveals that God the Father resides within the unseen realm in heaven and also illustrates that prayer is the actual medium of interacting with the unseen realm. This is important to know. The prayer ain't just some nice, like kind of throwing up hopes, or or just verbalizing some, you know, frustrations. That that's sometimes how we have boiled prayer down to. It's like I'm just frustrated. So I should pray. Uh, I'm frustrated, God. But but when you understand that prayer is the medium that interacts between the two realms, and Jesus gives us instructions when you pray, pray like this. Call heaven into earth. Br- bring those realities into this reality. And likewise, what we see also in verse 10. Is Jesus illuminating a threefold purpose of the seen realm, which is, write these down, one, establish the kingdom of God. He also highlights the purpose is to enact God's will and plan. And three, to extend heaven on earth. That right there is the conclusion of this series. That's the big plan. By the end of this series, we're going to get to that very sentence. Our job is to bring heaven to earth there are many gaps we have to fill along the way so that we can effectively implement that plan. And by the time I say it six weeks from now, your response will be way more enthusiastic than what it was when I revealed it just then. Because I know what you're thinking, what does that even mean? I bring heaven to earth? Because sometimes we have a picture of heaven that's different from the reality of heaven or different from what God wants to institute when He talks about bringing heaven to earth. There are a lot of gaps we have to fill along the way, which I anticipate doing each week. So, so, so let's do something today. As I intentionally restrict myself to teaching today, that's the goal. I ain't going to run around the stage. I'm not going to yell at you. I'm not going to preach at you. I am going to teach you some things. That's what I want to do today in the hope that we will deepen our understanding around all things unseen that will hopefully empower us to do actually what God has called us to do and our purpose as the saints. And I believe that the best way to approach this, to, to looking at the intent of the seen realm, is to go back to its very formation. Because before The creation story in Genesis, which is actually most accurately, we could put it, the creation of the seen realm story, we will find the unseen realm was actually already in existence. In fact, before the creation, we often think the creation story, when when we approach it in our mind, depending on how you grew up in church or if you just grew up under philosophies or, or whatever your thought is around the creation story, what we often think is that God was all alone in darkness. And because he was alone in darkness, he was lonely. And because God was lonely, he thought, let's make man, so I won't be lonely. That's often how we uh, rudimentarily approach creation. It's not exactly accurate. So let's go biblical today and let's get an accurate perspective of the creation of the seen realm story. You see, before creation, God was not alone and he certainly was not lonely. Actually, Psalm 82, among other scriptures, uh, in the Bible, scriptures like uh, Job 38 reveal that before the world was formed, God was among what's called the heavenly assembly. Actually, the psalmist Asaph, we, we know Asaph. We talked about Asaph last week. He was the worship leader of, of Israel. He, he writes a psalm that reveals what is called the divine council. He says this in Psalm 82 verse 1, God has taken his place in the divine council in the midst of the God's He holds judgment. Now, now, now track with me, and believe it or not, this verse has actually presented a challenge for many biblical scholars over the years because in the Hebrew it's it's kind of confusing. In the Hebrew, it's written this way Elohim, which means God, has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the Elohim, he holds judgment. So the same word is used twice. And the reason it's called con- cause confusion is because in Hebrew, plural doesn't work the way it does in English. Like, like in English, we just put like I-E-S or apostrophe S on something to mean more, right? But in Hebrew, you don't have that. The, the closest kind of English words we have to the way Hebrew works is like sheep or, or fish. Yeah. Yeah. One or many is the same word. Right, right. You know, if, you, if you've got a little kid, they say fishies, <laughs> They don't understand context brings the distinction. So, if I say, Look at all those fish, you have the idea that there's many, but if I say, Look at this fish, you know that it's singular. Right. This is what Hebrew is doing when it's using Elohim in two in one verse in two different ways, talking about Elohim God and Elohim gods or divine beings. Stay with me, track with me. And so, what this Actually, reveals like in Job thirty-eight talks about the different elements that there, there in heaven existed a divine council. That there existed in the unseen realm a heavenly council made up of, well, well, God. We know God was there, who was referred to in the Old Testament as Yahweh, and to biblical writers he's referred to as El Elyon, which means God Most High. That's significant to understand. That for God to be most high, there need to be some high people, right? There needs to be some other gods. You can't just be God most high if there's no other godly, divine beings. So he is El Elyon, God most high. Uh, you also have Jesus there in the divine council, Jesus, who uh, in that period is referred to as the the Word of God, as John one puts it very clearly. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So we know that Jesus was there, the Word of God. We also find in the heavenly council in Genesis 1-1 that the Spirit of God was present and hovering over the waters. Genesis 1-1 says, In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So we know the Godhead was there in the divine council. That's often how we've limited it to in the creation story, but what you'll actually find out within the divine council are some other divine beings, spiritual beings, in addition to the Godhead, what? we have is what can be best identified as high-ranking angels, or in other words, archangels, a level of angels that we intend to unpack next Sunday. So please come along. It's gonna be amazing. We're gonna unpack seraphim, cherubim, what all the purposes of the angels are. It's gonna be very uh, good for your angelology that you need to know. And I don't have time to go into it now, but what you've got to understand is there were this assembly of heaven, a divine council, as the Bible refers to it many, many times through which God would converse, not consult. This is important to know when we talk about the divine counsel, that God wasn't consulting with them. Hey, should we do this? He was conversing with the divine counsel. Oh, stay with me. I wanna make sure we track everybody together. This is teaching and preaching, so let me calm down. Divine counsel that God would converse with Yahweh. Would converse with the divine counsel. As we see, even in the creation of Genesis 1, 26, where it says, and check out this language, this is gonna be important. Yeah, yeah, you got it underlined. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish, of the sea and of the birds, of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So the language is our, let, let us, God was giving instruction to the divine counsel. Let let us do this. Then verse 27, check this out. So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. So what you've got is this interplay, this revelation that there is this divine counsel which God converses with, but at the same time, God is not stuck to. God, God, God does what He desires to do but He converses with the council of heaven so they can put their amen to what God does. They put their amen to God's decrees. They they put their amen like we get to put an amen to God's purpose on the earth through our partnership. The divine council gets to partner an amen with God. This not only reveals the presence of the divine council, but also speaks to the nature of it. See, this is not a council that votes or vetoes God's plan, but a counsel that enacts and outworks His divine plans. The way, the way that we in the scene realm also partner with God. God is sovereign. God is supreme. God can do whatever He wants at any time He decides. But this is so cool about God is that He decides to partner with you and I. The divine limitation of God, He has limited Himself to work in relationship with mankind. With humans to outwork His purpose on the earth. God in collaboration with the divine assembly, commissions, messengers, uh, people to outwork His divine principles and mandates. And this is what we see. And so, so what we find in Genesis is the creation story of the scene realm and a garden called Eden. Are you still with me? Like look at your neighbour, nudge your neighbour real quick, say we still here, you still yeah, still here, make sure they're still with you. We're teaching. I right, hate we're teaching. Hope you're taking notes. Eden 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 you probably know as a a garden. It's often how it's referred to that God placed man and created woman and he placed them in a garden in the east called Eden. And most certainly it is. A garden. However, Eden is also a river. Eden is a holy mountain. Eden is God's home on earth where His present dwell and, and where His divine counsel actually meets. You see, Eden is the visible image of the unseen realm. Often we have, an, and I'm hoping that we get a chance to explore this in the series, we've got a picture of heaven as heaven being like white everything and gold streets, right? Like that you've got white robes on, white teeth. <laughs> All the Americans said, amen. Uh, British don't really care for that. Um, but, but, but you've got this idea of like white robes, Gucci slippers, and, and, and gold streets and mansions. That's kind of the image that has been sold to us about heaven. But, but the reality is uh, heaven was, well, Eden was created in the image of heaven that God's design, God's frame. Even in the tabernacle, we see as the Israelites went through the wilderness, the tabernacle had Eden motifs on the inner sanctuary that, that ultimately reflected a mobile Eden that would take the presence of God, the place where God resided in the Ark of the Covenant with the cherubim on top, making the wings touch, making the mercy seat. We have a picture of Eden going with his people, a place of his presence where he resided, where the council would meet, where he would counsel with Moses. And he would give Moses instructions and he would meet to him like a man meets with his friend face to face. And so, and so what we've got within Eden, Eden didn't cover the earth. In the creation story, it was in the east. Man, when, when the fall of man happened, they were removed from the garden, a sentence that is required by law when you break the laws of, of any law. Any good judge will pass down a sentence. And so what we have is we have the mission and the mandate Of Eden, which is made in the image of heaven, in the same way as Eden is the visible image of an invisible heaven, man was created as an imager of an invisible God. A physical image of an invisible God. Let's make man an out image. You want to know what God looks like? He's got to look something like humans. I know you just want like this image of mist or something, but you're not mist. That there is an image that you were made in as an imager of God, not just physical, but there is a physical element of an unseen realm. Stay with me. And so we, as images of God, we are given the task of essentially making the entire earth like Eden. That was the plan, to expand beyond the borders of Eden and to fill the whole earth with the glory of God, to fill the earth with the kingdom. Eden was in fact the where the idea of the kingdom of God began. The kingdom being the rule and the reign of God. And this task in theology is known as the dominion mandate. That was the mandate given to Adam to to take dominion, a dominion mandate, to go into the world and, 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 and give three things. In fact, check this out. I love this because when God created man, He also gave man a job. All right, stop complaining about your job. All right, it's a blessing. It's not the job; it's the way you're doing it. That's that's truthfully because when you see it as a gift from God, you hold it differently. You work things differently. You see, you're there to change things, not just earn paycheck. You're there to shift culture, and God gives you a vehicle. How are you going to shift culture if you don't have a vehicle to shift it? Where are you going to do that on your couch? You got to understand that God mobilizes. I'm getting too. I'm preaching. Teach. Calm down. God gives men a job. And uh, so with that job, he, he, he gives him some attributes through which to achieve the task that he gives him. Yes. See, much like the divine council, who delivered the decrees of God, as God's images, humans were given the privilege of fulfilling God's plan through, through multiplying more humans, yep. through stewarding creation, through governing on God's behalf. That's cool, by the way. That's why the Pharisees had so much trouble when Jesus you know, wanted to heal somebody. And instead of saying, be healed, He said, your sins are forgiven. Right. Couldn't under, they couldn't understand, how, how do you have the right to forgive sins? Because the mandate was to govern on God's behalf. Right. Anyway, side note, we'll get there in another week. And filling also the earth with God's glory. That was another way that we fulfill the task. To fill God's earth with His glory. And this was to be done through different attributes that we were given as images of God. That the attributes that you were given being made in the likeness of God and made in His image, there are three prominent attributes that you use to fulfill God's task on the earth. One is intelligence. Two is creativity. And thirdly, this thing called freedom or free will. This is because we are reflections of a free being, not a cosmic automation. Wow. We're not robotic in our worship for God. God gives us freedom and free will yeah. to choose to partner with Him or work against Him. There's no middle ground, by the way. I'll just make sure I emphasize that. Maybe I'll revisit that somewhere. But, yes. but, but to understand that God gives you free will, see, this is the whole narrative with Job, by the way. Right. The devil went to, to God, Satan went to God and said, see, Job, Job didn't love you. He just worships you because you bless him. That was the whole argument. And God wanted to prove that no free will of man will choose to love God, even if he took the blessings away and gave permission. The devil tried to take all the blessings away, cursed him, made his life a, a wretched mess. And then Job still said, no, I'm not gonna curse God. I love God. He is faithful. He is good. And, and that proved the point. But anyway, what we find... As we see that uh, you've got this idea of free will. Free will is not limited to humans, by the way, but, but free will exists in both the seen realm and the unseen realm. This is, gonna get, this is about to get real cool. Because uh, it's not just the seen realm where you get free will, humans, but in the unseen realm with divine beings also have free will. So among the divine counsel of heaven, Was a particular entity or archangel called Lucifer, which in the New Testament refers to as Satan, which means the accuser. That's kind of really to say that correctly, you need to say the Satan, the accuser. And is represented in the garden as a serpent, through a twist of words, deceives Eve. Now, this was an obvious and clear uh, uh, rebellion by a divine council member, which resulted in being cast out of heaven. But something to note, and this is the only time, sorry, this is not the only time in Scripture that we see the free will of the unseen realm being exercised. Something that is both a little weird and probably a little confronting for a lot of people here is found in Genesis chapter 6, where it talks about the Nephilim. <laughs> now, now, the, now, bear with me, okay? The Nephilim... Uh, We're essentially the offspring of heavenly beings that from their free will embodied humans, left their post, left their designated role and their function as an angelic being and embodied humans and took wives from women of the earth, giving birth to a race of giants. Now I say that with tempered pace because I know that this is, Kind of the point where a lot of people say, ah, this is just, you know, stranger things. This is just mystical stuff. This is just, like, this can't be biblical. Like, as if, as if angels would think the women of earth are so beautiful because angels can't procreate. So they embody a human to then uh, produce offspring, forfeiting their right, their role, and uh, their immortality, taking on as a penalty, becoming mortal, which God warned that would happen. Therefore, dying. And as we'll learn in the demonic uh, Sunday that we talk about demons, that demons actually come from the dead offspring of Nephilim. Anyway, anyway, so we'll, we'll get to that. You have to come back every single week. Every week you should be in the house of God. You want the demons to get you? I think I'm joking. All right. But what you've got is these, Nephilim, I know it's always a point of contention. Ah, I just don't know if I can believe that. I I can believe like angelic beings, filling humans. If you can't believe that, you're going to have a very difficult time believing that our God, our Savior, can be born of a virgin, become human flesh, and die on a cross, and raise to new life. You're going to have a very difficult time with the central element of the Bible if you don't open your mind to the way that the fall worked on the earth. In fact, the way the world fell is an indication of how it had to be redeemed. Wow. <laughs> yeah. wow. Oh, There's so many, even as I'm teaching this, there are so many facets. We can't include this whole thing. I've got a timer that's, that's ticking away at the back and I need to make sure I get to the, the picture. Because what you've got to understand is that there was a, a counter claim on the earth when Lucifer... Saw his role was ultimately the worship leader of heaven, right. yeah, yeah. conducting the the praise of Yahweh, El Elyon, God Most High, above all the heavenly beings. He infrastructured and and created and conducted the worship that went to God. So when God decided and communicated to the divine council, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to make men. I'm going to make a race of humans that are going to populate the earth. He could foresee that all of a sudden it's not the unseen realm, but this seen realm are going to direct their worship to, to God. The jealousy within Him decided to corrupt God's creation, therefore instituting His own nation, His own plan, to fill the earth with his own offspring, the offspring of rebellion. This is where we get the Nephilim. The the, the Old Testament, if you track with it, we find this is where a counterclaim of dominion develops on the earth, the corruption of God's plan, and would ultimately require a reset. However, as an intermediary, God through Abraham carves out from all the nations on the world His very own nation. The offspring of these giants, the Nephilim, we start to see nations rise up and God as a disassociation from those nations that were not born of His plan decides to have a partnership with Abraham because of His faith. And through the lineage of Abraham, He declares, I will carve out of all the nations my very own people. I'll be their God. They will be my people. And I'll bless them. And I'll prosper them. And they will fill the earth and subdue it. This was the plan of God as an intermediary reset, knowing that the great reset was coming with Jesus. God himself would go into humanity. And what we see even in the story is that for the sake of time, I do not have the time to give you all the details. I don't have the time to go into all the intricate moments. But let me give you a big picture snapshot that may just cause more questions for, for midweek this week. However, it'll equip you for, for Christmas dinner to sound intelligent. See, we see God not only birth a nation of His very own people, but even after delivering them from captivity from Egypt and bringing them out through the waters of the Red Sea, parting that a baptismal motif, we see He leads them toward the promised land that, that was occupied by these foreign nations and giants. We see that as the Israelites go through the wilderness, a quick transition. It was meant to be. They sent 12 spies into the promised land. They come back with the report. There are giants in the land. And to them, we are grasshoppers in their sight. And as a result of their unbelief in their God bringing them out into the promised land, they had to wander 40 years in the desert, in the wilderness, until that entire generation died out. The generation of unbelief died out, except for the two who believed, Joshua and Caleb. They came back with the good report. We can do this. There's milk and honey. Who cares if there's giants? Let's go. And so so what we see is that only two, Joshua and Caleb, came back with a good report. What we see is that generation died out. It was now Joshua's turn to lead the new generation into the promised land to take dominion of what was promised to them under the instruction of God who, who was to gave him the instruction to completely destroy the inhabitants within the land. It says that Joshua was committed to the destruction of the foreign nations. Are you staying with me? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Staying with me. Now, this is gonna be really helpful as a backdrop to understanding our purpose and how we interact with the unseen realm as believers because Joshua, interestingly enough, in Hebrew, it's pronounced Yeshua, which is translated Jesus. <laughs> now, Joshua was an Old Testament foreshadow of Jesus, who through overcoming the evil nations, established God's nation on earth. In the same way, Jesus stepped into the world to establish the kingdom of God through a new covenant. Just as God delivered the Israelites through parting the waters of the Red Sea, Jesus became, began His ministry by coming up out of the waters of baptism. And just as the Israelites wandered for 40 years in the wilderness, Jesus immediately went into the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil. And what we see is Jesus prevail where the Israelites could not. And this was the beginning of the new covenant, or what we could even accurately say is the new strategy. That's what the new covenant is. It's a new strategy. It's a new strategy that God was implementing through Christ through His grace and through His sacrifice, a brand new strategy to re-implement the original plan to extend Eden across the world. Yes. Huh. Just making sure you're staying with me. Yeah. I'm trying to get little nods here and there. Just to, just, I'm, I'm reading little today, but that's cool. I'm teaching. <laughs> Don't expect you to stand up and say amen. I just do a little, a little nod will do though. <laughs> and so what we see, this new strategy, is referred to as preeminent domain. I don't want to try and overwhelm you with theological terms, but it's important to know that God's strategy was called preeminent domain. Maybe you're familiar with eminent domain. All the real estate agents would be. A lot of homeowners will probably know what an eminent domain is, that if you're living on a freeway or a road, or if the government decides that they just want to extend the railroad through your yard, guess what? You get no say. They have eminent domain. They can just take it and they can take portion of your land. Well, in the same way, God doesn't have eminent domain. He has preeminent domain, meaning that He owned it before. He's just taking it back. And He's not just taking some. He's taking all of it. All right, stay with me. This is important No, God's like, I'm taking it all back. All of it is, is coming back. I ain't just taking part. I'm not happy with just a little. I want all of it back, preeminent. He's taking it all. And he's reclaiming the earth and establishing His Edenic vision through Jesus by stepping out of the unseen realm through being born of a virgin woman and bearing the sin of the world. I like the way John puts it in John 1, 14. It says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, in his letter to the Colossians, Paul, the apostle, puts it, This way, not only does He echo God's plan, but connects the the parallel purpose of the seen and the unseen realm by reiterating that Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. He says it this way in Colossians 1.15, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by Him, For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. This is so cool. Stay with me, stay with me. I don't want to lose you in the language. I want to make sure you stay with me. This is so cool because what Paul is revealing is that Jesus, He he mirrored the, the unseen realm. He stepped out of the unseen realm. He stepped into the seen realm to fulfill the purpose that was formed in this unseen realm so that it would be played out in the seen realm. He was there at the beginning. And He's there at the (laughs) re-beginning. He formed the world. He's going to redeem the world. And what we see is this background knowledge is about to put us in the foreground of the redemption story. Because not only did Jesus, when He began His ministry, choose 12 disciples, symbolic, by the way, of the 12 tribes of Israel. But in Luke 10, we see Jesus do something really cool. He sends out 70 disciples. Because beyond the 12 were these... All these disciples and Jesus in one moment in Luke 10, He sends out 70, go and do the work. And it's an incredible story where they go out and they do the work of the ministry and they start praying for people and they're casting out demons and and they come back with this epic report. And, and it's interesting because the report they come back with and even the number 70 is significant because back in Genesis, we see that after the fall and after the flood, 70 nations rose up and joined together to overthrow God. These were the sons of Anak and the Nephilim and the giants who built a tower of Babel to reach heaven. Seeing this, God decided that He's going to confuse the nations. These were the nations born not of God's purpose, but corrupt nations, by giving them all different languages so they couldn't understand each other. That's where the term babble, babbling, comes from. However, when Jesus sends out the 70 disciples... They return overjoyed that even the demons obey us in your name. The the, the Old Testament is giving us a picture of a new strategy. The goal is establishing a redemptive story. Now, the implications are clear. Jesus' ministry marks the beginning of the end for Satan. Something Jesus made clear is that the kingdom of God is the aggressor. This is going to be so helpful for some people. I'm trying not to preach, but I want to preach so bad. Because sometimes you think that the devil's attacking you. This, I, I can't wait for the devil week, because I really want to help you know that, that he is not omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent like God. God is alone all over the earth all at once. So that means if, if the devil is in Ukraine right now right. or wherever, he can't be in your vehicle. Right. Yeah. Right. Like you, you're, you get flat like, devil's at me. <laughs> yeah. He can't be everywhere at once. Okay. Can I also give you something really cool that's going to empower you in your understanding that we serve one God. Yeah. We have one true God. Okay, and as the body joined together, we are one body in Christ Jesus, meaning the kingdom of God is a unified kingdom. What Jesus establishes, anything divided cannot stand. The kingdom of darkness is not a unified kingdom. Every demon, every devil operates for themselves. They are not in obedience or in allegiance to the devil, Satan. Each and every devil demon operates with a selfish ambition to occupy their own territory. This is why you need to know that the hordes of hell are not against you. You as a saint and a part of the kingdom are the aggressor on the earth. We are taking back territory that was taken off us. This is so powerful to know. You don't have to be on the run. You're not on the run. You are running after pursuing the enemy. You know, there is a, there's a passage in Matthew chapter 16, this is so important to know, where Jesus is asking the disciples, who do people say that I am? And they begin to say, you're the Messiah and they get the revelation, it's really cool. But in the midst of that, yep. Jesus, Jesus then says, and the gates, I will build my kingdom and the gates of hell will not prevail. Yeah. This is very important because it shows that we are the aggressor because gates are not an offensive weapon. They're a defensive weapon. Yeah. The only time you set up gates is to try and protect what you've got because someone's trying to take it. I have a gate on my house because I don't want someone to come in and take what's mine. The enemy, he's got some stuff. This is why I taught you last week that the enemy's good with you having prosperity because most believers don't know that they're meant to use prosperity to buy territory, to to purchase property, to take ground, to be generous, to build the church. And so he's defending what's his, hoping that we don't barge in and take people out of his territory to take dominion off what he has. That's why we are the aggressors. The devil's bunker down, holding tight, putting stakes in, footholds, strongholds, trying to keep hold of the territory that he's currently got. You're the aggressor. You're the aggressor. You want more proof? Matthew 11:12. 12. Peter says, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent take it by force. <laughs> you are so violent because you're in the kingdom of God. Stop being weak. You're not on the run. You have to freak out. You have to worry about the devil getting you. I, I, I can't wait to tell my mom that the ninja turtles aren't going to be the tool for the devil. Don't watch that stuff. The devil will get you. That's how I grew up. You know, if the devil is going to go to work somewhere in the world, it's going to be where he can cause probably maximum effect. It's probably going to be in some legislation or some policy that will ultimately prevent the purpose of God prevailing, eradicating life and diminishing things that will ultimately work on a large scale. Not worried about upsetting your day. Wow. Wow. Not worried about upsetting your week. Upsetting your rights. He doesn't care about that. He cares about working subtly to, to actually destroy a generation. Anyway, I'm teaching. You know what Jesus did? What Jesus did through his death, his burial, his resurrection and ascension was put back on track, us not waiting to go to heaven, but us bringing heaven to earth, yeah. Great. Yes. extending Eden into the world. And this is why in Judges 3, it says, these are the nations that the Lord left in the land to test those Israelites who had not experienced the wars of Canaan. He did this to teach warfare to generations of Israelites who had no experience in battle. In the same way, i got to illuminate, there are still demonic forces in the land, which we'll unpack in future weeks. But what's important to know is that Jesus gave us the keys of the kingdom. He's like, I want to, I'm, I'm inviting you to the battle line. And I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom so that whatever you bind on earth, scene, realm, will be bound in heaven, unseen realm. Whatever you loose in the seen realm will be loosed in the unseen realm. I am giving you the power to transcend realms, to actually play the new strategy, which is not a seen fight. It's an unseen fight. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. See, it's important to know that Jesus gave us the... Key. I like the way that Paul talks about it in Ephesians. This will bring some clarification because in Ephesians 6... Verse 10, he says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on the full armour of God so that you can take a stand against the devil's schemes. Check this out. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. What we should put there is any longer. Because it used to be. In the intermediary season, the the Old Testament, it was a flesh and blood, like sword on sword battle. It was eradicating the nations, the corrupt nations that were born not of God's plan, but born of rebellion. And Joshua. And the Israelites had to take dominion and eradicate those people. It used to be a flesh and blood battle, but because of what Christ did, He changed the game. He, he instead changed the playing field. He took it out of your battle, being against your woke neighbour or, or your employer, which you think is not paying you enough, uh, and all the people that are flipping you off on the 101 because you're driving a Tesla, all those kinds of things, that's not your battle. It's unseen. He says, It's not your battle any longer, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the power of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Verse 12, Therefore, put on the full armour of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything to stand, stand firm then While Jesus defeated death, we get to fight. We still get to fight. Jesus defeated death. Sentence has been passed down. There is an end. But we still get to fight. We get to fight from victory as overcomers in Christ Jesus. Understanding the purpose of the scene realm will illuminate where our fight actually is. Your fight is not against the political opposition to your policies. This is important to know because we get so caught up in stuff. We get so caught up in temporary things. Get so frustrated putting stuff on Facebook and venting your perspective from your beautiful position. Like you're missing the fact that there's a war waging that's beyond the scene realm why don't you dig into the unseen realm and begin to understand, God, how do you want to mobilize me in prayer? How do you want to mobilize the church and the saints in this hour? Fires not against flesh and blood. You need to know who your enemy is. God is bringing you into the battle. He invites you to the battle line that we could partner with God in His plan to establish heaven, to establish Eden, to establish the kingdom of God on earth. Let me assure you of this, that though the kingdom advances slowly, it does so relentlessly one new believer at a time. Yeah, that's right. You thought that you had to persevere because when are your family gonna come to know Christ? It's slow, but it's relentless. We ain't giving up. We're the body of believers. One of the greatest attributes of the saints is the perseverance. This is what confuses the enemy. He's so confused that, that he thought killing Jesus would be victory, they were unaware that they were playing into God's ultimate plan. At the same time with the saints, he thought that persecution would, would, would disrupt your loyalty to God, instead with the saints, pressure defines us and refines us and sets our hope on Christ even stronger. It's not struggle that disrupts the saints, it's comfort. Comfort's one of the greatest cancers to the Christian faith. That when you forgot that you're in a fight, when you start losing your faith because you're floundering around without purpose and without mission, you realise that I don't even know what I'm doing on this fight. But when you realise that there is a battle that we're in and daily I need to take up my armour, that daily I need to engage, that I need to pray in the Spirit at all times and pray for the saints. I realise I'm in a battle. Every church that preaches Jesus is a remote pocket of resistance, equipping the saints with what they need for battle. Every baptism, another pledge of allegiance to the Most High God. Every communion a partaking of the Lord's Supper, a denial of any other master. These elements are how we fight, by taking people. we're talking about holy ground. Holy ground's not locations anymore. That was the seen Rome battle. The unseen Rome, holy ground's people people captives, that the enemy is trying to build gates around and fortify in their blindness to the kingdom of light. But, but through the church and the work of the church, through the work of the saints, equipping and inviting and bringing people into the light, we are taking ground off the enemy. And every life that comes to the altar is new territory for the kingdom of God, a life redeemed, preeminent domain. Hey, I hope you were blessed by that message. We release new content every single week here at Vive Church. And so if you don't want to miss any of it, I would encourage you go ahead and subscribe. Also visit our website, vivechurch.org, to stay up to date with everything that's happening in the life of Vive Church. God bless you.